0: This is the Serious Cedar Podcast, episode 16, powered by Islamic Learning Materials.com. <speaking in the background> Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to the Serious Cedar Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. I'm also the founder and chief operating officer for islamiclearningmaterials.com today we are continuing we are continuing our discussion the prophet of the prophet muhammad's life sallallahu alaihi wasallam and today we are going to discuss the battle of badr however however i have discussed the battle of badr in a previous podcast i i don't really want to do it again so i'm going to do Rather than do the whole thing again and say the same thing I've already said at least two or three times already, what I'm going to do is give you a repeat of what I've done before in previous podcasts. And uh, without going into all the gory details, a couple of years ago, back in 2013, I did a series on the companion called Wahshin Ibn Harb. Within that series, uh, Wahshin Ibn Harb, if you don't know, he was... um, an Ethiopian slave who killed the prophet's uncle Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib within that uh, series of discussions we discussed the battle of Badr and I went into pretty good depth into the battle of Badr so there's really no reason for me to do it all over again and I just it's the same it's the same battle nothing nothing has changed so what I'm going to do here inshallah is instead give you that same episode from 2013 and just give it to you now once again people it's the same thing okay so i'm going to give you the same episode that we did back in 2013 only thing is i did record this uh about six months before i started the serious theater podcast and so my um my comfort behind the mic was different so it's not as uh is this different? Also, the tempo was was also was also different because with Sirius Sita, I was more or less doing a uh, a class in a way, whereas for the Battle of Badr that I was doing for the other podcast, that was kind of like Islamic entertainment. So it's a little bit different. I'm hoping you enjoy it. Inshallah, you will. It's a great story, really. It seriously is. And if you want to hear, want to hear the entire story of Washi Ibn Harb, then I will suggest that you join the Islamic Learning Materials Club, where the entire story is available there. I think it's about six parts; it's all available there. All right. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get into episode sixteen of Sirius Sita. But before we start, if I can just ask you, please ask you if you have the time. Join the mailing list for Islamic Learning Materials. We have a great, outstanding mailing list where you get these wonderful emails that that work to improve your faith and bring you closer to Islam, and it's it's really great. No spam, no crap, no salesy stuff, just really good information. Go ahead and join that, please. You can always unsubscribe if it's not to your liking. It's free stuff, nothing there for you to pay for. Just go to islamiclearningmaterials.com at the bottom of the page, there's a big old purple button that says Supercharge Your Faith. Click on that, and you'll be added to the email list, and you'll start receiving some great emails. And uh, believe me, you're going to like them, inshallah. I hope to see you then. All right, let's go ahead and get started with Sirius Sera episode 16. Having said that, also the prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers, because in the This ummah of yours is one ummah, and I am your Lord. So worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims—the blacks and the whites, and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs, and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah, and they were a magnificent. We're going to brother. continue our story. Of Wahshi ibn Harb and his involvement in the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi and how the events of his life intertwined through three prominent Islamic battles, three prominent battles within the time of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. When we left off last time, Abu Jal had left with an army of thirteen hundred from Mecca in response to a call from Abu Sufyan to protect the caravan of the Meccans from being raided and attacked by the Muslims. Prophet Muhammad ﷺ had led a small force of around 300 to 317 soldiers to intercept this caravan that was returning to Mecca from Syria and was laden with gold and valuables. Abu Sufyan realized that his caravan was in danger and sent word back to Mecca to send out a force to protect the caravan from attack. Abu Jal responded by gathering up an army of 1,300 people and they went forward to meet up with the caravan to protect it from the incoming Muslim soldiers. In the meantime, however, Abu Sufyan was able to divert the caravan in such a way that he was able to escape the attack from the Muslims and he returned to Mecca with his caravan completely unharmed. But when he arrived in Mecca, he realized that Abu Jahl and many, other, many of the other high-ranking Quraysh noblemen had left Mecca already and the army of 1300 had already gone out to fight. Seeing this, Abu Sufyan immediately sent out a messenger to catch up with Abu Jal and advise him that the caravan was safely back in Mecca and there was no reason to go forward with the army. The messenger eventually caught up with Abu Jal and gave him Abu Sufyan's message. However, Abu Jal was very confident in his ability to win this battle. He looked at his army of 1,300 people. He had sent spies and intelligence officers out to the Muslim camp and learned that they only had about 300 people. And he realized that this was a chance for him to rout the Muslims and end this whole problem once and for all. He was confident of his ability to win and he did not deem it necessary to return to Mecca when the odds, as he felt it, were so much in his favor. I mean, look at it from his perspective. They had 1,300 men. They had lots of armor, soldiers, very good weapons, wealth. They felt that they were fighting for the right cause. The Muslim army, on the other hand, had very few horses, very few camels also. The men had very little armor protecting them. This seemed... From Abu Jahl's perspective, the perfect opportunity to show the Arabian Peninsula that the Quraysh were still in charge and that they had nothing to fear and nothing to worry about concerning the small upstart community in the city of Yathrib that now called itself Medina Nabī, or Medina. Abu Jal saw this as an opportunity to cut Islam short and rid himself of this nuisance that he had been dealing with for the past 15 years, once and for all. And so, he sent the messenger back, explaining that they were going to continue with their battle, and he called out to his men and let them know the situation as well, and told them that the caravan had returned, but he felt no reason to go back to Mecca. However, some of the people who were with him disagreed, Certain clans who had gone along with the Quraysh disagreed with this and felt that now there was no reason to risk life and limb since the caravan had returned safely to Mecca and many of them departed and broke from Abu Jahl, which left him with a party, a full army contingent of around 1,000 soldiers. And now the other members of Abu Jahl's army they looked out and they saw the Muslim encampment and they realized that they were possibly fighting against some of their own brethren, some of their own cousins and family members. And some of them urged Abu Jal to return back to Mecca and leave this whole thing alone and not worry about fighting at this time. But Abu Jal, he really wanted a fight. He told them that they will have fun. It'll be a nice romp in the park. They'll destroy the Muslims and they'll have themselves a feast and they'll hire some dancing girls and have fun. He felt this would be an easy thing, a lark, just a little daily pastime. Wipe out these Muslims and let's go have some fun. That's what he felt it was going to be like. He was wrong, of course, but that's what he felt it was going to be like. And so he discouraged anyone from changing his mind he did lose a few more people who did not want to fight against the Muslims. But overall, he kept an army of around 1,000 men and they continued on with their plan to meet with the Muslims and fight them head on. What this did do, however, it did take away a lot of the fight out of the Quraysh army. Remember, their initial motivation for fighting was to protect their property. But now that their property was safe at home, safe in Mecca, for many of them, they now lost the motivation to fight. There was no reason to really fight now except to fulfill Abu Jahl's bloodthirst. And so, for many of the Quraysh, while they did stay on and they did support Abu Jahl, they, their motivation, the morale, their conviction, had been severely diminished. But look at it on the other side: the Muslims, however. When they camped and they sent out their spies and their intelligence officers, they realized that they were up against an army three times their size. They realized that they were up against soldiers who were much better armed, if not better trained. Definitely better armed and better equipped. The Muslims also realized that they were in a fight for their lives. If Mecca, if the Quraysh, lost this battle, there would come no harm. No harm would come to Mecca. Mecca would be just fine. But if the Muslims lost this battle, there is no guarantee that the Kurdish army would not continue on to Medina and inflict severe damage, if not maybe even topple the entire city. For certainly, the entire Muslim army that could be mustered at that time, all the fighting men possible, even those who were still behind In Medina would not have reached over a thousand. So most certainly, if the Meccan army had continued on to Medina, if they were able to defeat the Muslims at Badr and continue on to Medina, it is quite possible they could have inflicted serious harm upon Medina and maybe even destroyed the entire city, perhaps. So the Muslims were fighting for their lives. Not only were they fighting for their lives, they also had a conviction. They had the conviction that this was a fight of good versus evil. They had the conviction that Allah was on their side. They had the conviction that they were the vanguards of truth and that if they failed, it is very possible that evil would dominate from that point forward. And so they knew that they, these 300 men, were all that remained in between light and darkness. And it might be very helpful to take a look at the two different sides very quickly before we get into the actual battle. Let's remember now that the Quraysh were not well-honed, well-trained fighting men by any means. The Quraysh, while they had the money and the ability and the resources to properly equip themselves for battle, the Quraysh were not experienced warriors. They did not have constant warfare. They had very little internal strife. They had some arguments and some duels here and there. But there were very few long-sustained battles. The last time they had a battle was when Prophet Muhammad was a young boy and they had a battle amongst themselves. And even that was something very, very minor in terms of real battle, in terms of real warfare. That was something relatively minor. Before that, they were attacked by Abraha and his army from what is modern-day Yemen, his army that had elephants, which the story was which, which was mentioned in the Quran, in Suratun Fil, But they did not even fight that battle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent birds to wipe out Abraha's army. So the Quraysh were not really experienced soldiers. So they were not hardcore men who who were bloodthirsty, who just wanted to battle, who just had a love for battle for the sake of battle. Abu Jahl was the one really encouraging them on, and egging them on, because he did have a desire to destroy the Muslims and to get rid of Prophet Muhammad wasallam once and for all. But the Quraysh, overall, they really did not have any desire for warfare. These guys were noblemen. They were merchants. They were entrepreneurs, business-savvy guys. They just wanted to get back home and worship their stone idols and make deals and trades and talk about Prophet Muhammad wasallam behind his back and say all sorts of bad things about him. But they didn't really want to fight him now, especially considering who their opponents were. The Prophet Muhammad, yes, he did have several Muhajirun or several several of his companions who were from Mecca, Muslims who had converted to Islam in Mecca along with him, and then made the Hijrah to Medina. They did make up a good portion of his of his military at Badr. However, the vast majority of the people there were made up from the two tribes of Medina, the Aus and the Khazraj. I like to sometimes compare the Owls and the Khazraj to the Hatfields and McCoys. They were related tribes who, for generations, fought each other. The Hatfield and McCoys, if you don't know about it, they're a famous family feud in the United States between these two families who spent decades, generations, killing each other and picking each other off. And they did this for a long time. They're called the Hatfield and McCoys. It's part of American legend. The Aus and the Khazraj were like that, just multiplied by about 200. The Hatfields Hadfield, the and McCoys, they tend to try to stay away from each other, if at all possible, and only got into warfare or got into these little battles when things was prop up between them. But the Aus and the Khazraj, they lived to fight each other for a long time before Islam, and they had just recently suffered a major civil war amongst themselves. And the thing is, they both shared the same city. It wasn't until Islam came and united the Aus and the Khazraj into one brotherhood, along with the Muslims from Mecca, the al-Muhajirun, and Islam united all three of these components into one brotherhood. But with all that internal fighting, with that family feud, with all that Hatfield and McCoy stuff going on, The Aas and the Khazraj were very experienced with fighting. They were very well-trained, very experienced, and very capable fighters. And they would definitely give the Meccans something to worry about. So uh, not only did the Muslims have the impetus and the conviction and the motivation to fight, because they were fighting a fight that was for their survival. Because if they lost, there's no telling what would happen to their families and their property back home in Medina. Not only did they have the conviction that they were fighting against evil, that they were the forces of good fighting against the forces of evil. They also had some pretty darn good fighters in their ranks as well. Whereas the Quraysh had a bunch of fickle noblemen who were decked out in the best armor and had some of the best weapons and jewel encrusted swords and fancy white stallions and camels, but they really had no heart in this fight, and they really did not have the ability to fight. And this shows in the results of the battle. Now that the two sides were lined up for battle, and they could see each other's encampments, they went on to sleep, and they spent the night preparing for the next day's battle. The men of the Quraysh, Abu Jal, did his best to keep them lively. They sang songs and read poetry. They had dancing girls and feasted and drank wine and all sorts of stuff. Whereas the Muslims, they were in the month of Ramadan, and so they were fasting, and they spent much of the night in prayer and in sleep in order to rest their bodies. And when the daybreak came, the two sides lined up for battle. Are you ready to take your life to the next level? If you're struggling to gain that edge, to find balance and meaning in your life, the Islamic Learning Materials Club is your answer. Inside the club, you'll find full video courses on how to read Arabic, study the Quran, and basic Islamic principles. But, in addition to those things, you'll also discover how to find balance in your life increase your productivity, and become the leader you were always meant to be. How much better would your life be if you could spend more quality time with your family? How much better would your life be if you could finally attend that class at the masjid you never seem to have time for? How much better would your life be if you could read the Qur'an with understanding? This is what we offer at the Islamic Learning Materials Club. Join now, and your first month is only one dollar. Visit Islamiclearningmaterials.club to sign up Now there's something you have to understand about how battle was with the Arabs back then. It was the tradition back then for the two armies to line up face off against each other. And to send out, East Side will send out a soldier or one of the best soldiers to duel with the other side's best soldier. So It'll be one on one duels, and these will happen like maybe two, three, or four times in a row. Sometimes even more than that. Soldiers from East Side will come out and duel each other, and one soldier would win, and the other one would go would be basically chopped to pieces. And this will happen two or three or four times over. And this is what happened in this battle. Three of the Muslims stepped out for duel and three of the Quraysh stepped out for duel while the main bodies of both armies stood back in their rows. Of these first three duels, the Muslims won two and they lost one. The third person, his leg, the third Muslim, his leg was chopped off and he later died a few days later from disease. just shows you how dangerous things were back then when people could be could suffer a leg wound and die not much long later, not much Not much long after that. There was no anesthetics, antiseptics, antibacterials to protect their wounds at that time. So you can see how dangerous warfare was. There were a few more duels and eventually the Quraysh led the charge into the Muslims. Now before the whole battle started, the Muslims had set up Something sort of like uh, a stone encampment for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It was where he could stay out of the, the out of the den of the battle, away from the main theater of the battle, and conduct the affairs of the battle like a general conducting his soldiers. He could see the results of the battle. He could see what was going on, but he was not in the ranks with a sword in his hand. He stayed in the back, praying to Allah. Asking Allah for help, asking Allah for support, and managing the affairs of the believers, the Quraish led the charge after the duels were over. The Quraish charged into the Muslim ranks. this if you could imagine an army of one thousand fairly fairly chubby <laughs> fairly chubby men playing soldier, running down into a wall of 300 well-toned, yet barely armored men. These were the Muslims. And they clashed into the Muslim soldiers, trying to break through their ranks. The courage consistently clashed. And each time they clashed, they lost several men. I liken it to throwing a bucket of water against a brick wall. Each time they throw, you throw this bucket of water against the brick wall, you may wet the wall, but you're going to lose several drops of water. And that's how the Quraysh were. They would crash into the Muslims' defenses, and they would lose several men in the process. And then they would have to retreat because they could not get past that that wall of defense because the Muslims were only fighting a defensive battle at this time. They the, they were not charging. They were not attacking the, the Quraysh army outright. They were just standing as a defensive wall in front of the Prophet's encampment, the 300 men, and basically just repelling the Quraysh advance. This happened several times. The so Quraysh would advance and the Muslims would push them back. Finally, the order came for the Muslims to charge. But before that happened, let's look at what the Prophet of Allah was doing in his encampment. Throughout the entire process, Rasulullah, sallallahu Alaihi was making dua, praying to Allah for guidance and for help, praying to him for support. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded with verses confirming his help and support of the Messenger of Allah. Certain verses came down, such as, Fairly, I am with you, so keep firm those who have believed, I will cast terror into the hearts of those who have disbelieved. And also, I will help you with a thousand of the angels, each behind the other in the succession. With that last promise of help, Rasulullah sallallahu wa reached down and picked up a handful of gravel and dust, and then stepped away from his encampment and threw it in the direction of the Quraysh. And with that, Allah sent a thousand angels to fight alongside the Muslims. And then Rasulullah gave the charge, gave the call to charge for the Muslims, and the Muslim armies changed from a defensive position to offensive, and rushed into the into the Chubby Quradeshi soldiers who were playing soldier on horseback. The Muslims rushed into them and it was a sight something that the Kodesh just weren't ready for. They were already disheartened by the fact that they weren't really fighting for anything now because their caravan was safely back at home. They were also disillusioned and dismayed by the sight and the prospect of fighting people from within their own families. They were also further disheartened and further demoralized by their constant, consistent, unsuccessful attacks against the Muslim brick wall, their consistent offenses and onslaughts against the Muslim brick wall that just couldn't seem to break through the Muslim ranks. And now, to see these guys, now rushing after them, and certainly, there's several reports of Muslims seeing the angels that Allah has sent them. Almost certainly, the Quraysh had to see them also. The terror that went through their hearts must have been absolutely debilitating. The Muslims rushed into the Quraishi soldiers and the route was on. And there is no question about it. There is no doubt the Quraish were annihilated. They were not ready for this. They were not prepared for this. They were fighting against men who had conviction and against the A'us and the Khazraj who had conviction plus the ability to fight pretty well and the Quraish got their tails handed to them. Abu Jal, he himself was killed by two young Medina men, two young Medina boys, barely teenagers. He thought they were boys and did not want to fight them, but he did not know that these young men, these older boys or young men, however you want to look at them, they grew up in a culture of warfare and they knew how to fight and they tracked him down and they cut him to pieces. The Muslims just ran through the Quraysh and the Quraysh broke rank and ran off into the desert, leaving, dropping their gold and dropping their armor and leaving their horses and the goods behind. They just ran off. And the Muslims won the Battle of Butter hands down. Those who did not get away were captured, but many of them were killed. In the aftermath of the battle, about fourteen Muslims died in the Battle of Badr, while about seventy of the Quraish died, and another seventy were captured. Out of a thousand, you're talking about over ten percent of their army captured and killed. That may not seem like much, but it is. To have almost half of your, to have more than ten percent of your army captured or killed by a group of people less than one-third of your number is a big deal. You can only imagine what would have happened if the Quraysh had stayed to fight. They would have probably been further emaciated. And that basically ends the Battle of Badr. The Quraysh broke their rings, ran back to Mecca. Mecca was astonished that so many noble people had died. You would think that perhaps the Quraysh would learn their lesson from this. Maybe they would send out some sort of peace offering, try to negotiate something from the Prophet Wasallam. But no, they only this only hardened them and made them more determined for revenge. For the dead of the Quraysh, there was no honorable burial. There was no returning of remains. The vast majority of them were thrown into wells, thrown into unmarked graves, including the leader of the Quraysh, the Pharaoh, the Firaun of this nation, Abu Jal himself. With Abu Jahl's death, Abu Sufyan now became the de facto leader of Mecca. People looked to him as a wise one who had initially discouraged the people from going out in battle once they realized there was no need to fight anymore because the caravan was back safely at home. He was also well-respected as the leader of the Umayyad clan, which was one of the most noble and most powerful clans in Mecca. He was also a very well-accomplished and very successful businessman. And so he was a good choice by the Quraysh as a leader Of their city, the city of Mecca. Now came the time for them to plan their revenge. And this time the Quraysh weren't going to play games. The first time around, they were led by Abu Jahl, who didn't take this thing seriously. While he really did seriously want to get revenge against the Muslims and he wanted to make a lesson out of them, and he wanted to also teach them a lesson as well, he himself didn't take the battle seriously. Abu Sufyan would not make that mistake. He would make sure, to the best of his ability, that the odds for the Quraysh would be heavily stacked in favor of them over the Muslims. The next time he went out for battle, which would be basically just a year after the Battle of Badr, he would make sure to cover all ends. He would not make the same mistake that Abu Jahl did treating this thing as a romp in the park and a lark and a time for festivity and dancing girls. Abu Sufyan was going to make sure that when he came face-to-face with the Muslims, he would do everything within his power to ensure that the Quraysh had the upper hand. But let's go back to the beginning of our story. How does all of this tie into Wahshi ibn Harb? Well, during the Battle of Badr, Hamza, Ibn Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of Prophet Muhammad, was fighting on the side of the Muslims. And he was a very accomplished fighter. He was a hunter and he had the attitude to match. Now, perhaps if the Quraysh had somebody like that on their side, maybe they would have fared a little bit better. They would have still lost, but perhaps they would have maybe only lost 60 men instead of 70. Who knows? Bahamza was on the side of the Muslims and he killed several of the Quraysh leaders, several of the Quraysh soldiers, including Taima ibn Adi, who was the uncle of Jiber ibn Mu'tim, who was the master of Wahshi ibn Harb. And that's where all of this comes back full circle. When the Quraysh army returns home, and the people of Mecca realized how many of their men were killed and taken prisoner. A great cry of despair, a sob of sorrow rose up from the city of Mecca as the people lamented and wailed at the loss of so many of their fine men. And they vowed revenge against the Muslims of Medina. They vowed revenge against the prophet muhammad sallallahu wasallam and they immediately began to make plans for their revenge but for some people they took it a little bit more personally one of those who took it most personally was abu sufyan's wife hind bint utbah she took it personally because her father her brother and her uncle were all killed in the Battle of Badr, And to make matters worse, they were all killed by the same man, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. So between her and Wahshi's master, Juber ibn Mu'tam, they came up with a plan for the next engagement against the Muslims of how they they were going to get revenge against Hamza no matter what the outcome was whether the Quraysh won or lost they wanted to make sure that they got revenge against Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib and so they decided they decided to hire a hitman and their hitman was one of the best spear throwers with one of the most accurate eyes ever known in the Arabian peninsula and that man was none other than Washi ibn Harb the slave of Jibayr ibn Mu'tam. They came up with a plan and they offered Wahshi ibn Harb, who really had no disagreement and no anger and no reason to be against the Muslims whatsoever. Perhaps deep down inside, he agreed with much of what Prophet Muhammad sallallahu was saying, but he perhaps didn't have the strength and conviction of character that his brother from the same nation Bilal had to defy his master and go out with the Muslims. Perhaps he didn't have that same affair, but certainly when he heard the talk of Prophet Muhammad speaking about the equality of men before Allah, commanding men to treat their slaves with kindness and respect and that only way people could be better than another people is by righteousness of character and their deeds Certainly, this this had to affect him. He had to believe in something like this. But perhaps he just didn't have the strength of heart and the conviction that Bilal had to stand up against his master in spite of the obvious punishment that would have come his way. Perhaps he just wasn't that kind of person, whereas Bilal was. So Washi really had no argument and no disagreement with the Muslims. But he... Like many people, did not like being a slave. So Jabir ibn Mu'tam offered him a little something. He offered him his freedom. He offered him his freedom if Washi ibn Harb would do one single deed. Get rid of Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib in the battle of Ahud which would come one year from now. At that time, of course, nobody knew what it would be called the battle of the hood, but that's what happened. In Hind bin Zodba, she sweetened the pot by adding in another little deal. She told Washi ibn Harb that if he would get rid of Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, she would give him several of her gold bracelets. So Washi would get out of this whole ordeal not just his freedom, but also a small fortune. So Wahshi was a hired hitman and his target was Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. Inshallah, in the next episode of the Elm Show, we will discuss the Battle of Ahud and see what happens when Wahshi ibn Harb takes payment to carry out his assassination plot. Inshallah, this will continue in the next episode of the Elm Show. Do you like listening to Islamic podcasts? Visit podcastmuslim.com. Do you want to create your own Islamic podcast? Visit PodcastMuslim.com. Are you a Muslim podcaster? Visit PodcastMuslim.com. Visit podcastmuslim.com for everything you need to know about podcasting for Muslims.